In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Madam Speaker... Madam Vice President. You want to hang out with us? You get your vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine. And so I went to Human Resources. There are some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. The Betches Sup Podcast. A woman's problem, if you will. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. And I'm Millie Tamaras. And this is the Betches Sup Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Hi, welcome back to the USA, Millie. Yes, you know, America's a lie. Is what I was <laughs> That's like part of my stand-up now, but like, you know, happy to be back. I was definitely ready to come back, but also... Man, we were taught so many lies. Wait, and you just, what about this 10-day or however long trip really made you like zone in on the lies we've been told? Well, you know, just like that, I just, just like how cheap it is there. And, you know, we've been peddled Uh, all these things of like, oh, America is like the best place in the world and we have everything going and like everywhere else is a third world country and kind of sucks. And then like, I just keep remembering like a 90 day fiance, Paola, she's from Bogota and this guy lives in rural Oklahoma. And like, I was in Bogota is like the biggest city in Colombia. I was not in the biggest cities. I was in like small cities Mm -hmm. and they were fucking awesome. So I'm just like, I just remember his family being like, oh my God, like, how dare you? Like, or like, she's just using you for your green card. And I'm like, you can get 10 pre-rolled joints <laughs> of weed for $6 in Colombia and ass implants for $50. Like, why the yeah. fuck would she want to move to rural Oklahoma if not for love? And then I guess the Truly. final nail in the coffin was that any McDonald's in the U.S., the, the, all the fucking ice cream machines suck are, are broken and in Colombia, and I, later I found out through some beautiful DMs that all over South America there's ice cream only McDonald's locations where you can get a McFlurry, cones everything but wow. in America no ice cream machines work they don't and work so and much, all I ever want is a McDonald's ice cream cone they're so exactly. good they're like good they're consistent you know with this caramel no bitch I also grew up knowing that they were like they're like one weight watcher point <laughs> oh, <laughs> which Jesus. is really sad no, <laughs> but they're I mean... actually a very um they're a healthy sweet snack but it is, makes it even more disappointing when they're closed because you know who's always works tragically is Chick-fil-A and they have a similar style of ice cream cone. Sadly. I was so nervous about your motorcycle, your motorcycle tour. Uh, I was too. That was, <laughs> I think like sometimes I'm too brave and like I, I do things, I sign up for them and I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And then right before I'm about to do I'm like, Um, I think like all the like paranoia and like, wait, Millie, is this a good idea? That sets in like five minutes before. So I thought I could ride motorcycles because I ride Revels, Mm -hmm. which are like scooters, like mopeds throughout the city. And 
but those are automatic and the motorcycles are not. <laughs> was, oh. They were manual. So I was oh, stalling no. out in like some like. Not where you want to stall out. I was stalling out where I didn't want to stall out. I'll also say this too. I do ride Rebels all over the city. I've ridden it across. Fucking roads are nicer in Colombia. Like the, the highways, no potholes, nothing. Now, if you go off the highway, there's dirt roads, lots of rocks, inclines. It's super dangerous. But on the actual highways, and I was just thinking about infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, they took advantage <laughs> of COVID. Like, and they repaved all these roads. And I was like, dude, fuck the US. This whole trip was just a really like a reflection on American exceptionalism. You're just like, oh, the McDonald's ice cream, the infrastructure. I just didn't see you every, just doing a documentary, a 10 part documentary. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, finally, yeah, I think I want to get, be a better motorcycle rider because they were taking me through some beautiful Mm. waterfalls and jungles and hills. And it was so gorgeous, but I was just so worried about not dying and so stressed out about it that I couldn't Mm. enjoy the, I couldn't take it in because I was, my asshole was like two centimeters, like so tight. And I was so fucking scared. Well, now you have a goal. Yeah, no, I have a goal. Yeah, for sure. It's good to have goals. Uh, yeah, it's good to have, to have goals. goals. It's good it's to be good suspicious to of goals. America. Totally it's good to productive. be suspicious of America. A lot of yeah. expats there, and they're all like hanging out and living that life too. So that was also. I would read the Millie motorcycle diaries, <laughs> <laughs> where Millie travels across Latin America, inspiring the masses to yeah. movement. Yeah, <laughs> well. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell them just stay here. I just want you to know, like, don't go, don't leave. Like, when we get to the migrants at the border situation, really, what we need to do is send Millie down there on a motorcycle and say, "Go back." Yeah, this shit sucks. Um, but yeah, I mean, not to make like, but Jesus. Um, but yeah, if my mom was like, "Aren't you worried about it being scary?" and I'm like, "Listen, if my kidnapper is hot enough, <laughs> I'm not coming back." <laughs> So today we will obviously address that migrant situation in our last segment. First, we're going to touch on the Emmys, which we didn't touch on yesterday. And we're going to talk about some new challenges to the Texas abortion law. I suspect these are not the challenges that the right to life people hoped for. So that will be exciting to get into. So to start with the Emmys, the Pared Down Award Show handed out statue after statue to actors from Ted Lasso and The Crown. In a year with a record number of nominations for people of color, 44% actually, they weren't actually rewarded with the prizes, especially acting ones, which prompted Emmy So White to trend on Twitter. I mean, I read, I couldn't believe this, that Anthony Anderson was up for his 11th Emmy. I guess Keenan. the... Ben- yeah. Keenan Thompson. Oh my God. When He's will be they up give more. this man... They nominated him twice for being in Keenan and for SNL. And it's just... It's He's rough. just the one where I'm like, just give this man an Emmy or leave him alone. That's what I'm saying. Well, the <laughs> host was like, I mean, sorry, this isn't your year because of Ted Lasso. But it's like they say that every I mean, I love, year. Well, this is what we're going to talk about. But a few other lowlights that could have been highlights were that MJ Rodriguez, she was nominated for Pose and she was widely expected to make history as the first ever transgender performer to win a trophy for leading female actors. She did not. Olivia Coleman won her bajillion award. I love Olivia Coleman, but I don't think she needs any more awards. The Academy also had an opportunity to award the Outstanding Guest Actor Prize to Michael K. Williams for Lovecraft Country, but did not. He tragically passed away a few weeks ago, and this was sort of evocative of the Oscar ceremony where they did not award Chadwick Boseman, who had also recently passed away. 
a Black Lady Sketch Show took home only one award, even though it was nominated in five categories. So this year, as we said, it's a record nominations throughout the awards with better representation in pre- than in previous years. Why is there still this gap? I mean, between all of the nominations and then yet you watch the show and it's the crown Ted Lasso, the crown Ted Lasso, the crown Ted Lasso, and just overlooked every single category. What is this, what is this disconnect between nominations and wins? Well, I mean, a lot of, the majority of Emmy voters are white. So obviously like they want to see their experiences reflected back to them. So it's a, it's an issue with who's voting. And also I think it's an issue of what at the end of the day to them is considered prestige TV Mm. and like what is actually like the queen's gambit won a ton of awards. Right. And it's like, that's like the perfect, I think like prestige TV show Mayor did really, really well. Um, a lot of these quote unquote prestige shows focus on white people, whereas like, you know, Lovecraft Country is like a science fiction show that's on one of, you know, that's like coming out of a streaming service and all these different things. So I think like because people of color's stories often get told via like different avenues than what is considered like mm-hmm. the most prestigious of the TV, like the ways to be on TV is probably a lot of it. Um, I think a lot of, I don't know if you guys like watched the entire Emmys, but I watched them and there was this one part that I think was so indicative of the issue with this Emmys, which is this guy from the Queen's Gambit won a writing award. He went up there, he talked through the music Mm -hmm. twice uh, he refused, like literally he had a yeah. two page essay and he was like, I am reading this. Uh, he had absolutely nothing of interest to say. Very boring, generic speech. Um, I don't think that he's the one who told and Anya Taylor-Joy she was bringing sexy back, but oh, I, no. I think it was a different member of the team's <laughs> Queen's Gambit team. Oh Sing bring sexy back to chess. To chess, yeah. Because that's what it's been missing. Chess. That's what it's been missing. I thought I must have turned it off. As I've said on the podcast, I go to sleep at nine thirty. So that must. I've heard that that was a joke on their set, and it's like, okay, I also hate that that was a joke on your set. <laughs> like, yeah. do, are we still referencing sexy back? It's twenty twenty one. Let's do other things. Well, but- yeah, that's the last pop song these assholes listen to. So. <laughs> But right after him, Michaela Cole went up for winning. She won a writing award for I May Destroy You. She didn't win for her performance, which is also ridiculous. But so she won a writing award and she gives this gorgeous, succinct, incredible speech um, that like is really poignant. Probably I would say the most poignant moment of the night. Yeah. And it just felt so indicative of the whole thing to have this sort of like pompous white dude who no one wants to hear from giving like a bloated speech that inspires no one and refusing to get off the stage. And then Michaela Cole, who actually is someone who maybe the audience would want to hear a two page fucking speech from comes up there, knocks it out of the park in like 30 seconds and gets off the stage and makes the biggest impression of the night. And it's just like, that's what we're dealing with in entertainment is there are still so many like old fuddy white dudes who think they want to you, who think you want to hear them talk about chess. All right. And I think it's, it's, it's a, a few issues too. Like with, uh, with everything that Elise said, it's like to go back to these like guys, it's like, 
they were are used to a media that focused on them, where they're the primary target, where everything that they liked and they enjoyed and was aimed to them is the cool, edgy thing and nothing else matters. And there is a slight, a little baby, tiny shift of like a small, small percentage of media that now is focusing on other people or even aimed to target other people. Um, and again, just a tiny percentage. And these guys are like, they don't know what to do with themselves. They did not think that that would happen in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And they did not think that they'd have to deal with that. So like, it is this shift that's happening. So the thing about like these other stories is, um, it's like, yeah, now we're seeing like a small percentage, like a small market share, a small percentage of budgets at these streaming services are going to, you know, other stories, but it's still like not comparable. Like, I think too, it's all about budget. It's like budget to pay the actors, budget to, you know, set design, all that stuff. It's just not comparable when you talk about, you know, the crown. I think like a big, a big part of, or a big case study, which you could, there was an article about it, I think in the LA Times about the Selena series, the, um, uh, on Netflix, the Selena, whatever. And like what they've been asked. So it's cool, right? Like, yay, Latinx story, Selena. Well, they were, their writer's room was asked to do like 20 weeks for, a tw you know, just something where it's like they were given half the amount of time to make double the amount of content. Mm -hmm. It's a period piece. It's 1995. So that is really, ex you know, expensive and they totally. were given no budget. And then it looks really cheap. You know what I mean? Because they have no wardrobe. They don't have access to the cars. When you think about that compared to the fucking crown totally. where like they had endless amount of budget and it's not even just the budget to create, but it's also the budget of promoting the four year consideration campaigns. It's kind of, of like cyclical where it's like yeah like these white stories these it speaks to the execs more so they're gonna put more money into the show and because they're putting and like higher actors like higher white actors that are paid more and then give and then because they put all this money to fucking make it they're gonna put all this money to promote it where like you know these other shows aren't getting that same budget. So th there's like that aspect of like from the development process in general. And then I'm just thinking about these fucking nominations where it's just like every year, every year we have this issue and it's just, it, it kind of drives me crazy because I'm seeing the trickle down effects of this as like a comedian who's starting a career, I'm sure at least has where it's like, you know, it's like, fuck, dude, give these people a bone. Like, there are so many, like Z-Way, for example, mm -hmm. her show, um, they did it for, they, it didn't even get nominated. The only two things that were that nominated. That was a big snub, I felt, that they exactly. had to nominate Z-Way. Exactly. And it was like SNL and Black Lady Sketch Show. And like, which one do you think the show that's been going on for 40 years, that Jim Carrey and fucking... Norm McDonald, like all these like classics have been mm -hmm. on and it's been on for 40 years and it's on every week or the like black women thing that's only been on two years and like the last season was a year ago or something. 
The thing is, too, I'm just like, just give these fucking people a bone. Mm -hmm. Just like, like, why do we need so many? You know, it's like, why are we oversaturating it? Like, what is the message? And then it makes it difficult for the people in those projects, in these people of color projects to leverage more pay or this and that and like their next projects. And then it also makes it difficult. I think when I'm saying I see the trickle down effects, it's like, like studios execs like don't want to take a chance on people of color they want you to be so fucking like like well-oiled well you know what i mean like out there that like by the time you're developing things that's when they want to consider you for a staff role or you know what i mean and like it's like the people on angry or on um, a black lady sketch show they are all extremely seasoned mm-hmm. people. Like this is a career step for them that had they been white men, they would have probably gotten like 10, 15 years ago. They have already all done exactly so much in the industry. And like you yeah. said, like when you, and then when you only reward the crown, it's like the cycle continues because people only want to hire people that are a sure bet because you want to get the awards. And then this didn't happen. Fortunately, this cycle, because Anya Taylor-Joy has, dispelled it when she can but after that she won a golden globe for the for the queen's gambit she was referred to as a woman of color and she is latina but she tries to always correct people and be like no 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 no. i am yeah. white you do not get to claim yeah that a woman yeah. of color We've that you gave a woman Anya of Taylor color Taylor. award like look at me come on yeah. but there's definitely still a self-congratulation where it's like oh she can speak spanish good for us <laughs> Yeah, it's also like it's not to dog any of these actual shows or performances like i actually like all the shows that were awarded, but it's just like going back to Millie's point um, about the four-year consideration campaigns. That's like a huge part of this that happens kind of not as much in the public eye, but like is a huge part of actually getting awards and like who's able to wine and dine and has connections and can throw these parties. Like there was a huge, um, the golden globes had that huge controversy because basically Emily in Paris, like, paid to get nominated by <laughs> yeah. throwing a bunch of fancy parties for they Golden flew Globes. them to Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They flew yeah. them to Paris. Yeah. So that is what, when you're like watching these award shows or like hearing about it, like that's a whole other element of it. That's like under the surface that's been, been going on for months. Like who can afford to put those billboards up? Who can afford to like send swag to voters with a cute box and all of this shit like all of that happens yeah and and it's just like the studios taking a chance to even get a show made is already like taking so many chances and they're like look we're gonna make your little trans gay ballroom fucking show but we're not gonna give you any money to promote and then when you think about things that actually have cultural impact actually are changing society because TV does change society. It does open up. It does like transform things, you know, like clearly, you know, and and, like, that's why I love it. And that's why so many people want to work in it. And that's why it's so inspiring. And like, I feel like, you know, fucking Olivia Coleman. And I love the crown. It was fun. But like, are you telling me Pose? Like MJ and Pose and like that exactly harms her for her next project. And then at the same time, it's like Pose probably opened up and transformed so many people's point of view on trans people and the AIDS crisis and personified it in a way that like people just did not have access to and like had no con like 
context or understanding about what it was like to be a trans woman in the 80s. But when and white like, when white actors do that for movies, like they are rewarded for it, which is definitely a difference. Like it used to be a trope where it's like the more weight you lose, if you pretend to be a gender, you're not, if you pretend to be gay, yeah. like white people are always rewarded for that. And then here you have here you have people of color who have actually lived the experience yeah. getting nominated. And and like for you guys to have what it like to have if you are nominated, like Millie, were you to be nominated for an Emmy, that would open up paths for you, but certainly not to the degree that winning would of open course. up a path. Yeah. Do you think the fact that there are so many nominees and presenters of color, especially this year, maybe because it was a pared down ceremony, it felt even more striking that they didn't win because there were yeah. so many nominees of color. There were so many presenters of color. The host was black, but there were very few winners. Did that make the performative aspect of it stand out this year? I think, yes, as someone who, again, like I watched the whole thing, it was it really underscored that it's like all a sheen that they're Mm -hmm. putting over everything. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it it made there was a moment that the Emmys cut away from where Conan O'Brien was standing up and saluting the CEO of television in a very funny and fake way. And like, even though obviously that's Conan O'Brien, he's a, a white man, it felt I I wanted to like stick it to the CEO of television in that moment because it did feel like it's like, here's this lame guy. He's going to come out here. He's going to make some speech about how good we're all doing. But then actually none of you guys voted for any of these people Mm -hmm. of color to get awards to Amanda's point. You know, if that role in pose was played by a white man pretending to be a trans woman, he'd have two Emmys. Absolutely. He would have an Emmy for every year that he did it. How many like, awards did Transparent win? Mm, versus nah, how many mo- awards nah. um, Pose won? You know? Right. Yeah, I sorry, mean, it's almost, it's almost like, I mean, Millie, you sent this thread that put it so perfectly this morning um, where, and he said this at the beginning, it's like, it's it's just down to like what what the white people who are judging relate to. So they see Jeffrey Tambor. And if you're like a straight cis white man, you're thinking about, Oh, well, wow. Like, what a it process must be so crazy must be. for him to pretend to be a trans woman. That must right. have taken so, so much. So incomprehensible. To do. Yeah, yeah. But when you're yeah, exactly. But when you're a queer person, you're like and you seek pose, you're like, this is like my life and all this stuff, whatever. And yeah. And I think I think it is just a, a, emblematic of like so many organizations that are doing it now where it's like puppetry of like, mm. it's not whitewashing, but it's puppetry of like, look at all these beautiful puppets we have, but actually the people pulling the strings all along are still white and the people rewarded are still white. And it, it makes, it makes me a little depressed. Like, like you were saying, like it was so diverse and so cool, like the presenters and the nominees, but the awards and like, I'm really enjoying that show Reservation Dogs on FX Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, about Native American teens on an in in a reservation in Oklahoma. And they all came and presented an award and talked about indigenous rights and they had their own little thing. And I'm and like really the performance is like the last I mean, this is an example of the power of television. The last episode talks about suicide and like shows like, I mean, it doesn't show graphically, like with a lot of respect. And then I didn't know that like 
suicide rates among Native American teens are the highest in this country. And like it highlighted these issues and they gave amazing performances. And basically the whole season is like dealing with this one teenager's suicide, you know, from a year later and how it all affects them and like how they navigate life. And it's so sad. But then when I read how many Native American teens in this country have committed suicide and Native American people, and like I've read the articles and seen the performances and stuff. And then I'm just thinking like, yo, they're going to lose to White Lotus. <laughs> like, I know, but Tobias yeah. Menzies did a little yeah, accent. Like, he did a little, uh, a, slight, a slightly different accent than his regular <laughs> accent. So I give know. it to him. He couldn't even be bothered to show up. But and like, no that's problem. the kind of shit that's exactly what, ha- what happened. And like, that that depressed me. It's like, fuck. They're giving this groundbreaking thing. It's so cool. And like, fuck. I think, um, I think it might've been, yeah, it was Carrie Washington that read that one. And she was like, well, he, he's not here. So bye. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Anticlimactic. Maybe, maybe we can expect better next year, but um, I'm not sure. Only if the Millie Motorcycle Diaries gets made. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Millie Motorcycle Diaries is going to change the landscape of entertainment as we know it. And hopefully American infrastructure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If nothing else, McDonald's ice cream machines. Yeah. If nothing else, McDonald's ice cream machines will get fixed. You got to start somewhere. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. You get fast free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. For our next story, we have our first set of civil lawsuits related to Texas abortion law. Last week, this Texas doctor named Dr. Alan Baird wrote in the Washington Post that he performed a now illegal abortion on September 6th on a patient who was in her first trimester, but beyond six weeks. He said he specifically performed this abortion and wrote about it so that he would be sued and so the law could be tested. He was like, I don't want them to win just by hoping, well, I'll stop. I want this to be Mm. litigated. This doctor has been delivering babies and performing abortions in Texas since 1972, even before Roe v. Wade. One of the people suing him is an Arkansas felon and a self-described disbarred and disgraced lawyer who served a decade in prison and is now in home confinement. That man's name is Oscar Stilley. Stiley, he says he's not pro-life. Neither of these people are pro-life. I love that he's self-described as disbarred and disgraced. Yeah. I love that. 
Right. Oscar Stilly also is my favorite character in the whole story that we're going through. Um, there and there are several characters. Exactly. He is quite a character. I had to read several times to actually register that this man is a pro-choice man. Yeah. <laughs> he basically yes. is just like, seems like an easy way to make 10K. Jokes on everybody else. If it, he was like, worst case scenario, literally this is his rationale. He says, worst case scenario, I help overturn this, this law that is bad for women. Uh, best case, like worst case scenario, I got $10,000. Like oh, there's, I, he wins, I he wins either way. He said, he said to the daily beast quote, Oscar, he referred to himself as Oscar is going to be the fastest gun in the West. He's going to be there first. If there's money to be had, it's going to go in Oscar's pocket. He is representing himself. His three page <laughs> like brief was absolutely insane. Oh, I didn't know he was representing himself. They both are. They both Oscar. are. I will also say this, Amanda. In Mexico, you ain't getting fined for ten thousand. They just decriminalized abortion. I know, mm-hmm. and you ain't getting fined ten thousand dollars for getting an abortion in Mexico. But American so that's what exceptionalism, I'm saying. yeah, American exceptionalism ain't here anymore. Now you're gonna try to get an abortion. This fucking guy stuck in his house named Oscar. Yeah, in <laughs> Arkansas, a man in Arkansas who was the fastest gun in the West. <gasps> yeah. Boy, well, that's, that's he's, the on thing. he's on house he's on, arrest. He's on house arrest. He's, he's living under house arrest right now. Doesn't pay taxes. Yeah, that's what I imagine. Like a lot of internet commenters, you know, it's just like people. <laughs> There's also this um, this guy named Felipe Gomez. He is also a lawyer. He is from Illinois. He is suing. He's been less of a character about it, but he is also just wants to be a do-gooder. And he's asked a court in San Antonio to declare the new law unconstitutional. Both suits were filed in San Antonio and Texas right to life leaders are furious about this. Like this could not be a a worse set of test cases for them Mm. Two pro-choice men who just want to make this law look stupid. I mean, Texas right to life referred to these as self-serving legal stunts, which I don't know what they think the law is. (laughs) Yeah. But is it the law is based on self-serving legal stunts. That's how it's enforced. Dumb ass random people suing for whatever reason they want. So yeah, that's how it's playing out. Yeah. Well, like two things, like one, I bet you they wanted the first cases to be like a woman who got an abortion and her like husband or partner didn't agree. And they're like, so torn. And like, how can you kill my baby? Blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah. And then it's like these two assholes, which is like, good. Fuck you. You don't play games. You play stupid games. You get stupid prizes. Mm -hmm. But one and two, I'm learning a lot from the half episode of you're wrong about that. I've heard about the McDonald's coffee case. Mm -hmm. Is like, yeah, like this country, instead of regulating or making narrow restrictions on shit and protecting people, they it's like they make it so that we're litigious and we we go into lawsuits so then they can make laws and adjust that way. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of and like that's kind of what the Supreme Court wanted or said. It was like, we don't know yet. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, yeah, people do dumb lawsuits, but like it's the structure of this country to have it like that, which is dumb. How is Oscar yeah. going to go to the Supreme Court if he's in home confinement is my question. Well, honey, no, imagine this court. man off, arguing, defending himself before the Supreme Court. I love that he's defending himself, but still describes himself as disgraced. Okay. <laughs> right. They're the plaintiffs. So I guess they're just, they're just representing themselves. Okay. But what if I write this story and I start as Oscar, I do like <laughs> pretend to be a white man. Cause mm-hmm. I'm assuming he's white. And yeah. then, <laughs> and I, and I represent myself. 
will I get an Oscar for this role? You should. I mean, I think that hits all the all or of the Or will I get institutionalized? <laughs> <laughs> but then the white person who played you being institutionalized, yeah, they would, would be. They would they definitely, will get, an definitely get an Oscar. For they that, absolutely for the blackface for all of you. It. Yeah. But you know what? I will say this. You know how I know everything is bullshit is because <laughs> the Wendy Williams biopic on Lifetime was used the same format, but was way more tasteful and nuanced than I, Tanya, ever could hope to be. And that we're not giving it its flowers. And I just and I'm so serious. I am I not joking. I need to watch that. I haven't watched it yet. And I, I Tanya to. was disgusting. I did and not enjoy got, watching. I no, because she's making jokes about and like and like the Wendy Williams thing. I walked away having compassion deep compassion for every character for her husband, even though, you know, you kind of yeah. understand. And for I, Tanya, you're just like, why are you making jokes about getting smacked in the face? And it didn't even cover like the most fucked up anyway. I mean, now I got something to watch tonight. White supremacy is this country apart. And scene. <laughs> For our final topic is this just completely devastating situation at the border. So amid the pandemic and economic crises ravaging Latin and Central America, plus cascading natural disasters and poverty and political turmoil in Haiti, this has resulted in more than 10,000 migrants crowded near the WO International Bridge in Texas. So while they're waiting to be processed, they're sleeping outside in the dirt. They're surrounded by just growing piles of garbage and debris. There's no sanitation. There's very little access to food and water. It's a humanitarian crisis. Obviously, we've seen the images. And, and quite frankly, and sadly, this is not the first time we have seen these kinds of images at our border, even though we have a, a new president. So the White House says it's it wants more information specifically about these videos and pictures that I wrote, I guess I'm a copy appears to show, but they do show horses, uh, mounted U.S. Border Patrol agents mounted on horses approaching the migrants really aggressively with ropes um, and whips and really a lot of violence. And there's an Al Jazeera video with a Border Patrol agent. He can be heard saying, you use your women. This is why your country's shit, because you use your women for this. So Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he's responding to this. Yesterday, he said he was horrified by the images and that there is an investigation ongoing. Presumably, he means what happened there was not supposed to happen, although I haven't heard those precise words. He did say that mounted agents are part of the policy and should be there. Jen Psaki is also doing damage control this morning. Here she is on CBS this morning. He also felt they were horrific and horrible. I don't know anyone who could watch that video and not have that emotion. Uh, last night, our Secretary of Homeland Security put out a statement conveying there would be an investigation, that he's going to send additional personnel. And I think it's important for people to know this is not who we are. That's not who the Biden-Harris administration is. And we're going to absolutely pursue that investigation and get to the bottom of what happened here. Mayorkas says they're working to process migrants quickly and that his agency is facilitating one to three deportation flights back to Haiti and other locations every day. So I presume that's processing them in order to send them back. It's getting them out of that really unsafe situation, but potentially sending them to another one. He also noted that the Trump era public health order Title 42, which basically allows us to remove migrants arriving at the border without even allowing them to apply for asylum, that that's still effect. The Trump administration put that rule into effect during the pandemic. The Biden administration has carved out some exceptions for this, but they're also in court fighting for their ability to continue to do this. To, to mm. remo remove does not seem like the right 
verb for, for human beings, but they are still fighting for their ability to do this. They're mainly keeping like uh, unaccompanied minors and small children with parents. They're getting, they're able to stay. If you are a single adult, you're, you're screwed. If you're a single, if you're in a family with older children, you're screwed. You're getting sent back. Only refugees from Haiti who arrived in the U.S. before July 29th are eligible for temporary protected status. This, I believe, was expanded for Haitians after some of the recent natural disasters. Many reports have noted that a large number of migrants in that area, they actually originally fled to Latin or Central America after the 2010 earthquake or since. And factors mm -hmm. such as COVID, economic hardship have driven them towards the U.S. border. So the people that are going to be deported are probably going to be deported back to a place they might have not called home for a while. Democrats are obviously calling on the Biden administration to pause these deportations. The migrant situation poses a humanitarian crisis and obviously a huge political problem for the Biden administration. And it's just like, it's a, not a, a good look for us in the world to be asking other countries to respect human rights and then to have these images emerge from our border. The world's like obviously a trash fire. And I think the hardest thing... Of, one of the things about looking at these images is that, you know, the Biden administration comes out and they say, we'll address this. You're not going to see this in the next 20, 24 to 72 hours. We will clean up this symptom, but it always returns. And we have not had comprehensive immigration reform in 25 years. It just like makes me so sad because like for all the things that this country intervenes and stuff like Haiti has always just been a terrible fucking um, use of like, it, it's so close to us too. It's not like it's the other side of the world, you know, and it's just, we, we accept asylum from other countries that like have agendas that serve us, but with Haiti, like it, it, it's just like, and I'm sure if they could stay in their own countries, they would, but it's just, and it's because of shit that the U S has done directly. And even, even like, there are studies or articles now about saying like, you know, because of what France did after the revolution and how they charge taxes and stuff like, and how much money actually France owes Haiti, you know, and, and mm -hmm. it is like colonialism and, 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 and exploitation and stuff. And like, I mean, this is a big, you know, I, you know, I've talked with Elise about this, but like, and this is a big, I mean, you know, growing up in Miami, um, a big divide between like, non-cuban immigrants and you know and cubans who who were able for a long time because cuba was the communist country you know mm -hmm. or it is a communist country quote unquote um they were able to like emigrate here like with no or you know i mean not that it's no problem it's like tough there but was like, a policy called wet foot dry, dry foot let, that was yeah. in place for a long time that basically said if you were a cuban person escaping communism you could if you made it onto u.s soil then you could enjoy sort of like a an easier path to immigration that is no longer in effect, but it was the way that like a lot of Cuban immigrants were able to come here. And I think, you know, it was a way that a lot of them were able to maybe like fast track their route into the like, you know, being professional, yeah. being like in the professional class and stuff, because yeah. there are a lot of Cuban senators and doctors and all of this stuff. And like, 
there's a lot you can do when you're not being harassed by immigration every day or you're not trying to work through a system that is designed to keep you out when you're working with one that's actually designed to help you get in you can become a doctor again or a lawyer or whatever. And and like when you have, you know, you're not working these under the table, like exploitive jobs. Mm-hmm. And then and then it's like so it's it's that faster path of citizenship. And it was also seeing like growing up and seeing that like, uh, you know, boats and boats of Haitians would get sent back immediately, you know, without any fucking like just because it's not a communist, whatever, it's not a communist country. Mm-hmm. And like the people were like, arguably to many people the conditions in haiti are worse than you you know what i mean but like so that is like the at least comparable like if if we're gonna say like that people in cuba are under such bad conditions that they should come here which i don't think that the conditions in cuba are great you can't look to haiti and say no but they don't at the same time again that policy is not in place now but there have been times like you were saying where Cuban Haitians aren't. And also, I mean, there are a lot of Afro-Cubans, but especially in the first wave of Cuban immigrants, a lot of white Cubans were coming, whereas Haiti is obviously you're getting black people who are coming. So there's a huge there's that is also a factor. One hundred percent. Yeah. I just wish people would think of it more like because, you know, whenever we have fights over abortion rights, we get we hear more about like arguments from the other side. And I guess they say a lot like, why would you? Why would you kill a baby that could cure cancer? It's like, well, why don't you think that when you see the babies that that are getting whipped by our border patrol come, trying to come from here? Like, how do you know mm-hmm. that that baby's not going to grow up and cure cancer in this country? It's like, right. Yeah. If, if we're going to assume that every brand new life has equal amount of value and potential, then let the Haitian babies in, too. But no. And just to, you know, piggyback off something you were saying earlier, Amanda, I, what, something that I, every time I leave this country, it, it really like America and exceptionalism is the thing that people believe in. Like our view of immigration is so America focused that like every time I go to Latin America, I'm reminded that like, no, actually, like there's a lot of Venezuelans in Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Haitians all over South mm-hmm. America and in Mexico. There's parts of Mexico where you can get really great Haitian food because there's so many Haitian immigrants there. And like that kind of thing is not kind of ingrained. So it's something like just to reference um, that you were saying, yeah, like they're going to deport them back to Haiti. But th- these people haven't lived in Haiti for like 10 or 15 years. And it, when I was in Colombia, I watched the local news, which I'm convinced the local news everywhere fucking sucks. But <laughs> like they had this really strong anti-immigrant sentiment in mm. Colombia about Venezuelans and Haitians. And like, look at them. They all have crime or like they're staying in tents or this and that. And then they. And like, I was like really disgusted by it. And I'm like, this is like Fox News level, like propaganda in local news. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, they were at least nuanced enough to say, because I'm watching it in Spanish, but like they were nuanced enough to say that, like some people are taking advantage of these immigrants, Mm -hmm. like being here and committing crimes and saying that they're Venezuelan or saying that they're Haitian and stuff. So like that was really interesting to me. And like it's it's also interesting that like if a Colombian comes here, like they people don't care if you're like from Colombia or Venezuela, like you're all viewed the same. So that was interesting. And another Mm -hmm. thing, too, I think that the the trouble or like the compassion I have with Haitians is like with other inter-Latin American um, migration, there is, you know, like if somebody from Venezuela, obviously like 
Venezuelans, I think the richest ones would, you know, migrate to the U.S. But like there are many people it's like, yeah, they would go to Dominican Republic or to Colombia or something where they already speak Spanish. And it's like an easier integration for them. But like Haiti is like they speak Creole. You know what I mean? They don't speak Spanish. You know, a lot of them are bilingual, multilingual. But like that's also a language barrier, too, you know, of like wherever they go, there's not really many countries that speak Haitian Creole, you know, it's like, so that's like a barrier and a a thing that I think about him. There's nowhere you can go to be understood. I feel like you are entitled to live in this country. Like, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's just tough. And like, like you're saying, if you're a single adult, you're screwed. But a lot of times, like families will send one person out to migrate. Yeah, that's a great point. They can send money to, you know, so it just fucking sucks. This whole thing sucks. And the images are terrible. Yeah. And it is like not to be callous about it, but it is a political problem because who's going to benefit from this? Republicans. All the polling says people just do trust Republicans better on immigration, even though. That's incorrect. That's <laughs> incorrect. Yeah, it's these images, and I think the administration knows this. They're, every time this happens, they're like, "We'll get it sorted out between not, twenty-four to ninety-six hours." It's just what we what we inherited from the Trump administration was so bad. It's like, y'all, it's been nine months, and yeah. every time this happens, we get very angry, and Republicans get a lot of points. So we need to like, we need to. I know there's a lot of priorities, but like, we're not going to convince Joe Manchin. Let's have some meetings with some other people. That's yeah. It it's been really. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is just like the cruelty that's built into the system. Like, I don't think that Joe Biden is like as hatefully xenophobic as Donald Trump. Certainly Mm. not. I don't think that he's like hateful in that way, really. But the system is built to allow for such cruelty and mistreatment that unless you are actively engaged in a massive overhaul of that system, these things are going to keep happening. Like, and Joe Biden can separate him, the white house and Joe Biden can separate themselves from it as much as they can or say like, it's, you know, it's out of my hands because it's actually this person's fault or whatever. And it's like, but what we're saying is we need a complete overhaul of this system and how we are treating people and what our values are that are being put into place out here, because it needs more attention than just when 12,000 people show up at the border. He like the president gets on TV. Mm-hmm. And like, just to, everything that you just said is like everything, right? Like, like we're talking, I mean, it's all connected. It's just like, if you're not overhauling these oppressive systems, like how are you going to expect the Emmys to change? How are you going to expect anything to change if you're going to not, do some drastic reforms. And I think that's like, that is like the argument of our time, right? Mm-hmm. Is like, let's do things slow. Let's keep things the, ch- the same, or let's make drastic changes and overhaul these systems that are inherently oppressive. And like, that is the argument of our time. Yeah, exactly. On that note, that is our show. Until the end of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. And I'm Elise Morales. And this is the Betches Up Podcast. Bye. The Betcha Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.